All right. Welcome everyone back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today we've got Lee Weisenberger with us. Lee, man, welcome to the show. I'm excited about today's show for numerous reasons. But you know, before we get started, why don't you just give me a general just give me a general background, man, and, and where you came from, maybe what was your first computer and, and how you got to where you're at now. Yeah, so uh, actually my father was a four hundred programmer, so we always had tech manuals. Um, he was a He's kind of a uh, flipper, so every once in a while he would search the local advertisements, classifieds for computers that he could fix and, and resell. And I remember at one point in time he got on a kick of uh, K-Pro luggage computers. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those before, <laughs> but they were the first portables, and the thing was the it was huge. And, uh, like, literally like a suitcase. Portable. Yeah, and to call it a portable computer was kind of a stretch, but... Uh, I remember that was one of the first computers I learned on with its six-inch CRT screen, you know, huge suitcase-looking thing. And uh, it was funny because we had computers. And we always went to the computer shows. and But he never wanted me to play games on the computers. They were tools. So if I wanted to play, um, compu- play computer games, I actually had to program them myself. So that was one of my first forays into programming was learning Pascal and how to make a card or flip game. And, and uh, that really kind of set me on the path. Although I will say as a teenager, I never wanted to get into computers. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm actually Googling right now, it was like a six, a six inch CRT screen and these, these computers right now. In fact, I want you to send me the picture of whatever that computer was that you worked on, because that's what we're going to use as the cover of this show. Cause that sounds really cool. Um, yeah, they actually were pretty neat. My brother was the old, my oldest brother ended up getting into computer programming. That's like always what I was asking him as a kid. Like, can you build me a video game? Can you build me a video game? Like I had these, you know, visions of grandeur that he was going to, you know, make some really cool, um, exploratory game for me just out of nowhere. Um, he never did. And that was disappointing. Um, I would say the games that I produced were not something that would probably sell very well, but uh, (laughs) I was pretty intrigued at the time. So, okay. So fast forward, man, um, you know, where are you at right now? And just kind of give me an idea just for some of the other people out there listening, there might be new to IT or, or, you know, just getting started, maybe system admin, stuff like that. Like, how'd you get to where you are? So it was a long journey that's kind of been, um, solving problems. That's really what got me where I am today is identify problems within the organization that I'm working with and Mm -hmm. come up with solutions. So at one point in time, that was solution design and development. I was part of uh, developing the warehouse management system that we use today for uh, my company, which is Universal Logistics. We're like a 1.6 billion annual uh, 3PL. We're like top 25 in the country. So a lot of what we do for our warehouse management was actually designed by uh, myself and my team. And it was filling a niche. What did we have is a problem and how do we fix it? And that's really kind of how my career path has taken off. I just look for the problems within our organization, come up with solutions, work with the different groups that, that are involved in that problem and, and create fixes. And that's where I see IT really growing. If you want to be successful in IT, uh, fix problems. Now, there's, problems. there's kind of like a conflicting viewpoint in the industry you know, do you need certifications? Do you need education? Do you need MBA? What are your thoughts there? Just out of curiosity. I, I think really all that comes down to is proof of knowledge 
So certifications are great and MBA is fantastic, uh, but really comes down to, are you capable of solving problems for the organization you want to get ahead? So I, I've seen where people come in with certifications, they check all the boxes and they get here and, and they really don't want to do anything other than day-to-day operations. That's okay. fine, but most likely you're not going to rise to the top unless you're willing to make some sacrifices and, and go outside the norm. So I guess let's just dig in a little bit different. How, how would you say you communicate? How do you find those holes and, and solve those problems? And, and just out of curiosity from someone on the outside, like how, how would you communicate that other than, you know, Hey, I'm a problem solver. Like what are some of those examples of like where you found holes and how we've solved it? And I know we've got, you know, we can use that big example of, you know, uh, you know, data-driven analytics and, and, you know, IOT stuff and robots driving around the, around the warehouse, which I think is a really cool story and we should touch on that. But how did we get there? Yeah. So I have quite a bit of experience on not only dealing with day-to-day IT activity, but I do a lot of pre-sales. Um, so I actually interact with a lot of different IT groups for Fortune 50, Fortune 500 companies. And I see it time and time again where IT works in a vacuum. Uh, they're not involved in the actual activity that drives revenue within an organization. So if you look at, uh, I don't want to say any specific customer names, but I mean, you look at somebody that does, that builds, assembles vehicles, you know, big automotive company. Many times their IT department has no idea how a vehicle is built. They don't understand all of the idiosyncrasies as far as what it takes to sequence a vehicle on the line, what it takes to get material to the assembly plant to build that vehicle, um, all the different pieces around the actual engineering and designing of that vehicle. All they're focused on is, can I keep the network running? Does this guy have a computer? Um, do, did we buy the right product? And without actually understanding what they're trying to do, you can't really solve the problem. You don't have all the pieces to, to answer the question of, are we doing this the best way? So that's really more... IT morphing into not just network management, but IT as really getting, I would say, more scientific around, you know, if obviously if it's in manufacturing, it's getting scientific around how do we make the entire process of the business better? Yeah, basically, you'll see more and more organizations, especially large organizations, where IT is driving their initiatives moving forward. I mean, everything that we're doing new is technology driven, whether it's robots, um, RPA, workflow automation, those are all technology based. Now it may not necessarily be an IT developer that's doing workflow automation because you know, KISS flow or other automation yeah. tools make it very simple to, to plug and play and click, but somebody needs to understand if that's the right approach to take before you can implement that type of product. I don't mean to use Facebook as an example here because that's not always the best example, but you know, their vision for so long was just get more users, just get more users, just get more users. They had a very simple business mission that everyone could attach to. Uh, so in that situation, you know, IT or technology, it was all about technology. How do we get more users? How do we get, and it might not necessarily be there, but you know, for your, your given example, your organization, how is IT driving that. And I think now is probably a good example of, you know, 
robots driving around or like, let's, let's use like a hard example in your organization of how IT has driven the business forward and how we kind of, let's break it down. Yeah. So for us, because we're supply chain, one of our biggest challenges right now is labor. Um, you know, I think in our, one of our initial calls, I, I brought up the Amazon effect and, and you weren't really clear on what I was talking about, but anybody that deals with um, low skilled or semi-skilled labor is facing a labor crunch right now. Amazon and other companies like Amazon that are not working on a profit motive are hiring as many people as they can at much higher labor rates than what we would typically pay as an organization that is focused on, on profits and revenue. So it makes it a challenge when my material handlers, fork truck drivers, um, inventory control people are being taken away from me because a company down the road will pay $2 an hour or more. So most of my major warehouses and large cities, I am now having at least 20 to 30 people that I'm short on a given week. And that's basically because they know that if they don't like their hours, um, they don't want to work overtime, uh, they want $2 an hour more, they can just go across the street and they're guaranteed a job. That's crazy. I mean, the Amazon effect. I, I love that. The Amazon effect. And I don't know, what, I'm just curious what you think about that in general. It's almost like it's the opposite of the Walmart effect. It's because, you know, like, like with Walmart, people, get, they get accused of not paying enough, not paying a livable wage and stuff. But Amazon's is, is, is doing the exact opposite or they're taking people away by paying them more money is what you're saying. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening now. So which one's more destructive to like American business? The fact that Amazon, every 46 cents of every dollar spent in the world is spent on Amazon right now. Um, Because is there some crazy statistic like that? I think it's 46 cents. It might be more, but that's just, it's, it's absolutely mind blowing when you think about that. Yeah. And to see how fast that they've grown, you know, I think there's a timeline that going around on LinkedIn where you can kind of see the biggest organizations and, and how their revenue has grown. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was the people that you would expect, you know, the IBMs, Coca-Colas. And then as you look now, there's companies that are, you know, Apple, um, ABC company, uh, Amazon. I mean, Amazon is primarily a technology company. Yeah, they sell products, but when you look at their bottom line, it's, AWS is driving a lot of that profit. They're basically the, one of the world's largest technology companies. Mm. So, okay, so how are we dealing with this? We've got a, what's a labor shortage, it sounds like. So we've got to, we've got to fix the labor shortage problem. Um, and the, the fix to that, the simple fix would be, all right, we're just going to pay people more money, but that's not necessarily a great business decision. So what's a better business decision? Yeah, so a company like us, uh, we're primarily contract based. So I'm engaged in contracts for the next three to five years where my labor rate that I'm being paid from the customer is fixed. So if my labor is increasing 20% year over year, I don't have that accommodation in my contract. So by year two or three, I'm going to be losing money. Uh, So how do we combat that? Well, one of the ways that we're combating that is uh, especially where we're deficient in labor is through automation. And some of the automation that we're using for supply chain is AGVs, automated guided vehicles, or AMRs, autonomous mobile robots. And really the difference there is is size. An AGV is usually a much larger piece of equipment, and AMRs can be as small as a Roomba. And uh, 
And actually, Roomba is a pretty good example of what an AMR does. It can evaluate its environment. It uses a combination of lasers and uh, and uh, cameras to, to do some evaluations. It does real-time mapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has multiple workflows. And actually, I was last week, I was at one of our larger facilities uh, implementing another 10 robots that will do tasks such as uh, hot park delivery and uh, delivery to storage locations after it's been sorted. And now, let me are, ask you this. How much do one of these robots cost? Uh, about 35000 but you can buy them through a lease. And for us, it's equivalent. I think we're about three robots per head. And if you look at a three-shift operation, the reality is I can do like eight robots for one person per shift. And for us, you know, with the number of shortages that I have and the amount of overtime hours that I'm giving, I can make a quick ROI on a, on a lease where I'm hoping to basically break even or do better within the first month. Yeah. I think most people, when you look at a PL or most people that have that kind of business experience, know that any company's largest controllable cost is labor. Um, so that's like a massive line item that technology can, can influence quite considerably. And quite often the IT, you know, the IT budget, which I'm sure is changing a lot right now. I know in the voice and data world, I know voice and data usually eats up about 1% or less on a P&L. So it's almost nothing. So if voice and data can affect, you know, labor piece, then that's huge. And IT and IT, whatever that budget is, whatever that line item is or percentage is, um, can really, I mean, you can really play with some numbers there and make a big difference in the labor piece. Yeah. And the thing for us is that we're not looking to eliminate heads with technology. We're looking to one, improve uh, our efficiency so that mm-hmm. we're getting more from the labor that we have mm-hmm. and to augment our shortages. You know, if I can't hire enough people, what do I do? Well, if I throw a robot here, throw a robot there, mm-hmm. That's what we're doing for now. And we're also using those robots to do tasks that humans don't want to do. So, for example, the hot part delivery, that's a 300-foot walk uh, down a dock that it is really just a waste of an operator's time, especially when that operator is graded on their efficiency. So if they can pick 10 items in the same amount of time it takes to deliver one box, well, they get much higher credit for the 10 picks because that generates revenue for us. Whereas inefficient moves that costs us money. Yeah. What about, uh, I would imagine there's like some safety benefits as well. There is. Um, actually, safety is one of the big concerns when you start integrating robots with humans. And, and that's, <laughs> how do I make sure that my... iRobot take over. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a double-edged sword. So I have to be conscious of the robots because the robots are expensive. So I have to be careful that an operator on a 5,000 pound work truck isn't destroying my robot. But in turn, if a robot is interacting with the human, especially if the human that's not on a piece of equipment, well, that's a huge concern because safety is a, is a very high priority. So we try to put these robots in tasks where they're not directly interfacing, especially the larger AGVs or in the AMR cases, uh, their security, their uh, safety protocols are, are so robust that uh, I'm less concerned about the robot than I am concerned about the interactions with the robot. Yes. Um, that's, 
it's it's just crazy. I, now I'd imagine, you know, spatially the the way that these things operate within a warehouse too. I would imagine you could. I mean, is there a spatial efficiency that's gained as well, or or lost with robots driving around? Um, initially, I would say there's a loss, but I think in the future, as we incorporate this more as a core competency, we'll get better at allocating space based on how we're utilizing robots. This this area is just growing so fast. That was another reason why we went the, uh, what they call RAS, but the lease approach is, in my opinion, three years from now, these robots are going to be two generations ahead of what we have. And we're seeing that, that their next iteration has more functionality, more safety features, uh, faster processing, uh, that you're going to see major movement in this space in the next five years, 10 years, that the warehousing landscape in 10 years is going to be completely different than what we see today. And and also the movement in the space for IT leadership, technology leadership is going to be huge as well because anyone that can grab onto this and understand this and grasp this concept, I don't think people have quite understood the vast changes that are on the horizon when it comes to IoT, data-driven analytics, and what can actually be done. Uh, I don't think the lights have quite gone on for everybody yet. And for the ones that have, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing, the things that, have been, that are being done. No, I agree with that. I would even see from somebody, from my perspective, where I spend quite a bit of time looking at what's next, I'm amazed. Um, just as I learn new things, uh, as I have demos of the software that's available, um, some of the workflow automation, RPA automation, I mean, it's, it's simple. It, and it's just going to get easier and easier. So the, the times of doing lean and automation using extremely expensive, high-end labor, you know, developers, BIs, mm-hmm. that, you know, that may not be the case in five years. You may be able to have a power user that can do an automated workflow that can save you a significant amount of time, money, or labor, and it'll cost you a, a SaaS license that's you know, $1,000 a month. So let me ask you this. There's a, a very typical problem that I help people deal with on a daily basis. And that is uh, a lot of times we know we need something and we don't know where to begin. Okay. And what I find is that a lot of technology leaders or IT leaders start by let's Google things. Let's look at Gartner Magic Quadrant. Let's get on a Reddit feed. And what I find is there's a, a six to seven people involved in any decision-making process in, uh, in companies right now when it comes to purchasing anything, even if it's, you know, you know, the robots and how we go about a new software solution or anything like that. And there's a lot of marketing messages and sales reps knocking on doors. And I find that IT leaders quite often waste potentially, you know, six to eight months of time even just searching, evaluating, and researching products, and they end up buying something or purchasing something that is what is the perceived best product in the marketplace, as opposed to what's the best solution custom fit to their unique business and unique business needs, goals, um, kind of like your situation where you've got the, you know, the Amazon labor thing. 
And it's really not about what's the best product. It's about what's the best product for your unique company. A, would you agree with that? And I know what my solution is because I just help people evaluate all that stuff and do all that research and, and, and sift through all that crap. But you have a very interesting philosophy of like, I'm not going to even touch something if I don't see a real quick return on investment within the first six months. And most people don't even have the research done by that time. So A, would you, do you, would you agree that a lot of people are kind of just getting bombarded with numerous products and not knowing how to sift through them? And then how do we, and what's your solution to cutting through all that crap? Yeah. So where we differ from a lot of organizations, especially my division specifically, is that we're working in that contract model where I may be operating business today that I won't have in two years or three years. And I know that going into it. So uh, when I look at enhancements and improvements, my ROI window is very short. Uh, I need to have an ROI with that first contract period because I'm not guaranteed that second, third extension. So, uh, but I think that also helps us because I see too many organizations that look at a change that's going to change the entire environment, but getting the buy-in, uh, picking the right vendor, making sure the solution works, that's all, as you said, very time-consuming, where a lot of times I think the way you implement technology is just as important, if not more important than the technology that you implement. Uh, when are you look at... And, and hold on right there, because that... What you said right there is, is just absolute gold because how many times do people make a decision thinking about just the product or just the technology without thinking at all of how the hell do I implement this thing and what's going to happen after the fact, after we make a choice and how is this going to affect end users and have we even thought about you know all of this implementation and training and all that part. I, I just I run into it every day. I see people make decisions. And then after the fact, they're like, what the heck's going on? I see it in healthcare. I've gone into a hospital and seen, you know, thousands of mobile, you know, EMR or electronic medical record equipment just sitting in a patient room, not even being used and the old stuff still being used because there was no plan for the implementation. Yep. And the other thing is when you look at competing products, you take something as simple as CRM. Okay. I've got to touch base with my potential sales pipeline, organize my salespeople, what makes Salesforce better or worse than Microsoft CRM? Really, it comes down to implementation because you can talk to people that love Salesforce, you can talk to people that love Microsoft, and you'll find just as many people on the opposite side that hate it. And I can point to, in most cases, that being a poor implementation and not fitting in with the organization's needs because somebody didn't do their due diligence ahead of time. Exactly. And I think that that's where people make the mistakes on Reddit feeds or acting up, asking other potential colleagues as well, because their business environment might be completely different. Yeah. For me, I'm more interested in building relationships. I do it with my vendors. I do it internally. Um, I think if you're going to be successful, you need to have a good relationship with your operations team. You know, if you're in a business like mine with your engineering team, um, your HR functions, we're communicating well, then I know what their needs are and I can help facilitate implementing new solutions. If I don't, I'm going to make assumptions on what they need. And in many cases, I'm going to be wrong. Exactly. It's about long-term partnerships, not uh, one-time transactions. Yep. And here's the other thing is doing a small pilot like we do, I get a good feel for, is the vendor going to work with us and deliver a solution that's going to work? So in the cases where we're trying to change the world all at once, 
while you get six, eight, 10 months down the road before you really determine is this going to work or not. Whereas in a small pilot, you may have results within days, weeks, or months that you may not typically see for years doing much larger implementation. So tell me about that. Like, how would you evaluate a vendor just out of curiosity? How do you know whether the relationship's going to work or not? So one of the big things is I try to get past all of the techno jargon. You, know, you kind of go back to your Salesforce and, and Microsoft CRM. They're, they're both going to tell you how great they are and all the things that they do that the other guys don't do. But what really you try to break down is what am I trying to accomplish? Not what are they trying to sell me, but what is my end goal? So in the case of the robotics, mm-hmm. my end goal is to minimize overtime, you know, come up with the staffing uh, shortages, help alleviate some of that pain points. And so we worked with a few different vendors. Well, AMRs, the smaller robots, are really more geared towards an e-commerce environment, which doesn't quite fit our mold. So I was able to eliminate a couple vendors really quick because their focus was e-com and some of the things that are unique to me being heavy automotive and manufacturing. It just wasn't the best fit, even though every conversation with them was, oh, we could do anything you want. We can make this change. As soon as you start hearing people say, we've got to make changes to support your environment, that that raises a red flag. Mm. There you mean they've got to make... make, They've got to. They've got to make changes. They, they've got to bring in their programmers and, and change yeah, something, yeah, right. which is not going to be, that. that's like, that's like someone saying it's on the roadmap. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, you, oh, it's, a, it's going to be coming out Q3. Like, yeah. no, no, we got it. You're like, okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. they're saying, everyone inside their organization saying, stop telling people what's on the roadmap. Okay. Now, with that being said, um, if we get a partner that is very upfront with saying, hey, we don't do this today, but this is something that we would be interested in and we're willing to dedicate our time and money to make it work for you. That, that's a little bit different. So we, we see both where you get the vendor says, oh yeah, it's coming or you can modify yeah. the player that way. Or you get the other that says, hey, this is a unique market space that could be a good fit for us. Those are great partnerships because you're providing value to them and they're providing yep. value. You. Well, some companies are known for having great custom dev teams. Yeah. Some people, some companies, that's, that's what their thing is. Their thing is, look, we do what everyone else does, but on top of that, we have, we have a custom dev team because we know that your organization is different from someone else. We know that every company is unique and every company that does well and is going to be successful has that unique value uh, prop or, or unique you know, attack on the market. So um, that makes complete sense. Uh, yeah, actually, that's really one of our big marketing spiels to our customers is, uh, you know, we're in, we're in automotive, heavy manufacturing, aerospace, but our customers are all fairly common in how they assemble material, how we deliver material. And one of our niches is being able to integrate with customer systems. It's I just, have an entire team that their focus is integrating with SAP, integrating with Oracle, integrating EDI. Mm-hmm. So we're really good at it. And uh, that's a big bonus for our customers because in many cases, they're looking to go outside because they're not getting the support that they need from their IT group. You, you can't be everything to everyone anymore. Correct. You just can't. You have to be, you have to niche down. That's why I don't, I just like, I have a, a customer, a, a, a customer, I guess what you would say, um, 
avatar that I that I support, right? Manufacturing, logistics, actually, um, you know, uh, construction. But I don't do banking. Like I wouldn't even. I'm not going to even go close and even touch that, especially with all the security concerns and everything like that. Like I'm just not going to do that. Even if even if they ask me, like, please, like, we need you to replace our Cisco call manager. Like, sorry, I'm just. It's a no. Um, because that's just not what I do. I'm not doing banking. Um, you know, nothing against, you know, nothing against that, but that's just, I know what I, what market I serve well. And the more you niche down nowadays, the more you're going to be able to support your customer better. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges that we see in our industry with some of the major players. When you start looking at like Red Prairie, Manhattan, Oracle, they're everything to everybody but they're huge organizations that have thousands of developers. So even though it looks like they're everything to everybody, they have a division for pharmaceutical. They have a division for retail. They have a division for automotive. Yeah. They have their niche, but it's niche within their organization. Now you take a mid market player that's trying to be everything to everybody that doesn't have those niche groups and you're just not delivering as good of a product. Now you go to the small market and you get a niche player who's only focuses one of those groups. They can oftentimes provide as good a product as the major player, but the focus is going to be on your industry. Now, if you're an organization like us that's trying to branch out in industries, then you've got a challenge. Do you have multiple products that are niche? Do you have one big product or do you do what we did and just develop the solution internally that this services all your needs? Yep. I thought, you know, and even when you said earlier, Salesforce was a good example, right? If you're going to put Salesforce in, you've got to, you know, now you've got another developer on top of Salesforce that's niche to your industry that's going to make Salesforce work for you. Yeah. And, you know, what you see is in those major corporations, Salesforce, Red Prairie, Manhattan, they buy all the niche players, right? So that's how they have an all-encompassing product is they bought 15, 20 different companies that worked in those niches and then just incorporated their technology into their own. Yeah. And then uh, even like Microsoft Voice, like Teams, like integrating Microsoft Teams and the voice portion on top of that, right? Like I've got whole companies that all they do is just the voice portion of Microsoft and, and just host, hosting Microsoft Direct. But um, All right. Really cool. Uh, I have a bullet point from our conversation last time, relationship with operations and communicating and understanding pain, pain points and stuff like that. So let's kind of just break down a little bit more what another, you know, like you said, mid-market IT director or, you know, what what's helpful as far as communication things? Are there any tips or tricks, ways to break things down? If we were to put this into a, I don't know, roadmap that you download online or something like that, what would it look like? So for me, um, my last 20 years have been in supply chain. And with that being said, major focus on warehousing and just-in-time delivery, things of that nature that I, I actually have a big portion of my team that has been directly involved in what we do to generate revenue, which is picking parts, putting away parts. Um, I've had employees that have been forklift certified. So you come in as a developer and you go to a warehouse, get forklift certified and, and work with the operators. Because I think mm-hmm. if you don't truly understand what it is that your organization does, how do you properly evaluate changes that you're making? Mm-hmm. How do you properly support the people that you're working with? And here's the counter to that. The the people that are proactive and, and take that approach, they get the feedback from operations and they build a relationship where operations knows 
that they can go to the IT group and get the support that they need because they understand what their challenges are. You can't do that from an office. So you're saying, just as an example, uh, because I've, see, I've seen this before, you're saying IT team or someone on the IT team, if your company, say, does, I don't know, has 100 truck drivers and the majority of the company is delivering things via truck drivers, that IT guy should ride around with the truck driver. Absolutely. Now, I'm not saying every IT personnel does, but definitely your people that are involved with support, development, you should have some of those people that have a really close relationship, not only over the phone or email, but have actually been involved in the activity that that person is doing in the day-to-day job. Um, if you're retail, hey, work a, work a cash register, help receive in the back, help stock, you know, understand what that process is so that you can really identify what the challenges are. Because I, I may sit here in a vacuum and think I know what challenges a cashier has, but until you've actually lived the day in the life, you really don't know. Yeah, as opposed to just running the trouble chick, you know, what a uh, trouble ticket chain, like that type of thing. Yeah, and, and the other problem that you run into there is when you look at scope change or you know change in the environment, you're going based on one person's recommendation. Where uh, so they're driving the map for you. Don't, and me personally, I don't want somebody making the map. I want somebody to tell me what their problem is, and then we can discuss the different ways to get there. Between your house and your office, there's probably 10 ways to get there, but there's probably only one or two that you take on a normal basis, right? And you learn that because you took two other paths and they, you know, you hit roadblocks, you hit stoplights, took longer, <laughs> you didn't like the scenery, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. If you didn't explore a little bit, you might be on the worst path that takes twice as long. And then you, on top of that, could say, hey, what do you do on the way on that drive to work? Because, by the way, I can help you implement these two other tools to take this and this off your plate on the way to work. Exactly. Because that, that's really what I see in most of our customers that have IT challenges is that, one, they get changes that they didn't ask for and don't support what they're doing. Or, two, they directed what they wanted and really didn't go about it in the best way, where somebody from a technology point of view, came in and actually evaluated what challenges they had, may have said, hey, you can make these two non-technological changes that would ease a lot of your pain, and then we can make these two technological changes that would help you more. Instead, they get this hodgepodge solution based on an operations person's opinion on what you're doing. Have you ever been in a position where you were... And and this is just me asking you to be vulnerable here. Ever been in a position where you are just afraid to make a suggestion because I'm sure there's a lot of people out here that are like, crap, I don't know if I can do that. I've been sitting in this position for X number of years and I'm just maybe afraid to go do something. You know what I mean? Like, is there any, any ways there's, I mean, I'm a big proponent of, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Like that's just been something I've told people all the time. Uh, But do you run into that? Well, here's the one thing I'll say is you have to build a rapport. You can't just walk in and say, hey, I'm going to change everything or I'm going to be the guy that fixes everything. You've got you to learn, you've got to get a comfort level, and you've got to build trust. If you don't have trust, going in is probably the wrong approach and saying, hey, we're going to change all these different things because it's going to make your life better. So if you're new to an organization or you're new to your career, then you want to do more listening and asking versus 
Um, where me, I'm 20 years in, I've been in the same company for a long time. I have established relationships with senior people. I'm in a senior position myself where I can more go in and say, this is how we're going to do it and <laughs> get, get agreement from people in operations because we built that trust. Yeah. It's really about building trust more than, than it is being right all the time. Yeah. In other words, listen without putting your own autobiography on top of the story. Listen. Yeah. Listen without thinking about what you're responding or what the solution is before you've even listened and taken notes. Here's the other thing that, uh, that I did and still do now is observe and determine who really understands what's going on and then ask them poignant questions. So, you know, the, the old adage, there's never a stupid question. I don't know that I agree with that 100%. Oh, there's definitely stupid questions. Yeah. I always tell my kids that. I'm like, well, yeah. there's a stupid question. It's kind of one of those. But if you're paying attention and observing and you're making poignant questions to a knowledgeable person, typically that person will recognize that you at least put some thought into it. You have a base understanding and will be more open to explain their opinion. So there's a, there's a handful of people that have been in our organization 20 plus years that I have a lot of respect for. If I'm unsure, I'll go to them and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So I don't always have the right answers, but it's creating a dialogue. So it, you don't always have to be the answer man. You just have to be able to collaborate with the right people and to get to an understanding and agreement. And typically what you'll find is you maybe had a great idea, but you get two or three more people that, that are strong and understand the organization that they're going to make your idea even better. Mm, yeah. Collaborative collaboration, of course. Um, all right. Last question here, because this has been excellent. There is a theme uh, going around LinkedIn from other IT directors. Uh, and I see this come up quite a bit. And I, th this, the theme is, you know, you, you don't have to be like an entrepreneur and the end game doesn't have to be about, you know, creating some sort of, you know, special like program or something like that. It might just be about supporting your end users and doing a really good job in the role that you're in, which is, which is awesome. So, um, I guess my question is, what does career growth look like for you? What's the end game? And in general, for IT directors, I mean, we're, we're we are moving into an unknown future, right? And the typical, you know, like the age-old American dream is, I'm going to work, I'm going to get a pension, I'm going to retire, and I'm going to retire at an age where... Um, I've already wasted all my good years anyways. So uh, my, I guess my question is, what do you do for fun and what's the end game? So uh, I'll go to the end game and kind of how I got here first and say, I started a consulting company relatively young. So I always look from that mindset of providing value both you know, within my own organization and now with the organization that I'm with. I think to be a long-term employee, you just need to continue bringing value. You know, the, I could see some of the older generation, they paid their dues and let me ride out to retirement. I think that that's gone. In most cases, especially in larger organizations, you better be providing value. And you better continue providing value if you want to be a permanent member. In other words, act like an owner. Ownership. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, gotcha. and, and it, for me, it's it's... Revenue generation, cost avoidance, uh, you know, some of the different challenges that we have with labor, but every organization is going to have their own thing that they're focused on, either better performance, um, 
customer service, building relationship, those things are all important. Um, the one thing I, I see in a change from the millennial mindset versus the previous generation, and I'm kind of in the middle there, is that <clears throat> the previous generation very focused on, on work and career where the millennial focus is more on experience, um, work-life balance. And, and I see I see the pros and cons of both, and I'm kind of in the middle there. I, especially as I'm getting older, I can see the value of the work-life balance and, and why in some of corporate environment, it's really not structured well to support a healthy work environment. Mm-hmm. A lot of things that you can look at that point to the fact that we, we overwork ourselves. Now, with that being said, I think we can work smarter and provide just as much value as you know, the, the employee that's doing 80 hours a week and have find a happy medium here where we're providing value, but we're not killing ourselves doing it. What do you think about neg- IT, IT directors just negotiating their own thing? Like, what about MBOs, like management by business objectives and IT directors creating results-based IT plans? In other words, you know, a lot of guys might just have a salary and they show up for work. And then other guys could actually go to a CTO or CFO and say, hey, look, um, pay me less, give me a bonus if I'm able to drive this revenue in this business line or give me ownership or give me this and, 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 you know, management by results, not management by, you know, Hey, I've got a job. Yeah. And so within our organization, we kind of have two roles. We have the day-to-day administration and then we've got kind of the role that I'm filling, which is kind of the, where are we going technology, um, solving business problems. And for me personally, I like the results oriented. I like to know that I'm on the right path. So I have conversations with our CEO and uh, in my direct report on what should I be focusing on the next quarter, the next year, and then out to three to five years as far as what the corporate vision is. I think that's very important. Whether you're administrative or technology, I think you should at least understand what the expectation is to make sure that you're going in the right direction. I think too many people wait for their annual review to get bad news. And if they don't get bad news, they just keep doing what they're doing. I like the opposite approach. Let me come to you and say, hey, these are the things that I'm working on. Is this the right direction? Mm-hmm. And are there other things that I should be looking at? Yeah, not to mention that that's just more exciting and, and life-altering and life-giving. And it's uh, ballsy because uh, you, you're, you're putting your mouth, you know what I mean? You're putting your uh, money where your mouth is, so to speak. Yeah, and, and the one thing I want to preface is that I am saying this from the position of somebody that's been within an organization for an extended period of time. That, that's not to say that you know, anybody listening to this, that's the first year of their career that you're going and say, hey, I'm going to do all these big things because... It, it could just be one small thing, though. It could be yes. one small yes. thing that you make a difference in, you know? And a lot of people are out there struggling to, I don't want to say make a name for themselves, but you know, they're struggling to differentiate themselves from every other person. I mean, a lot of times you apply for a job and there's like 400 applications for the job, right? So how do you differentiate yourself? It's all about differentiation and how can you actually bring value to the organization? And we all need to understand that, right? The, the primary purpose of a business is to make money. I mean, that is the reason why a business exists. And the more that you help do that, the more you can differentiate yourself, even if it's in one small thing, you know, like, hey, I'm a system admin guy. I helped process these many more tickets by, 
personally connecting and sending out a survey to end users, asking them, you know, what's your single biggest struggle with XYZ? Because obviously this is causing a bunch of tickets and I solved that problem. And guess what? I lowered our ticket count by 20%, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, So there's two approaches. One, I've seen an issue and I'm taking steps to address it. Or two, I have capacity and what could I be doing that provides value? And I've, I can be honest to say that I probably only had enough people to count on one hand that have ever come to me and said, Hey, I could do more. What do you want me to do? And those people succeeded. It's amazing. You know, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I can remember getting a pizza delivery job once just because I called the guy back. He's like, well, you're the only guy that called me back. (laughs) I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, so you're hired. Like, all right, man. It's amazing. Uh, the little things it's, you know, we used to say TL, TLT, uh, one of my old teams, you know, the little things are what matters. That's what differentiates. So, and I'd say the other thing is don't necessarily allow rejection to define your success or failure. So you may, you may ask the question, Hey, is there anything more that I can do? And the mm-hmm. answer would be at this time, no, but that doesn't mean you can't still keep an open eye and say, Hey, here's a problem. Here's what I'm doing. Or re-ask the question in six months. Yeah. I had a, uh, I had a manager once, Walter Domler, and he had a big framed piece of art on the wall that said, if you're not getting rejected three times a day, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, I can, I can do that. Uh, <laughs> we, get we used to tell people, go get rejected. <laughs> and, and here's the other thing is, even if you are rejected, you can follow up and, and, get some good feedback in many cases. So, you know, like I said, I'm in pre-sales at times, so I'm doing tech reviews and things like that. We don't win every piece of business that we go after, mm-hmm. but we do try to follow up when we don't win and understand where did, where did we fail and where did we succeed so that we can focus on the areas that we were deficient and mm-hmm. highlight the areas that we were successful. There's actually an interesting statistic about that. There's only five to eight reasons in any business as to why you would get rejected from any proposal or claim or art, you know, whatever it is, right? There's only five to eight reasons in any given business. It's not 20. It's not a hundred. There's, I bet you, if you asked every single one of your customers that did business with you or decided to not do business with you, there's no more than eight reasons. Um, So it's, you know, some valuable business information. If, If people aren't asking why, you know, why did we not win a bid or why did we not win this or, or if, let me ask you, why did we win, right? Which is important. Um, there's never going to be more than eight. Yeah, um, no, and I would say we probably see even less than that. Usually it comes down to price, capability, or presentation. Did we do a good job of communicating what we're capable of doing? And creating a partnership where they actually feel like you're working as a partnership together, not just a product. It's not just a product, right? It's a partnership, so. Yeah, and it sounds cliched, but... The reality is you could be the smartest guy in the room, but if you can't get along with the rest of the people there, you're not going to be very successful. No, it's true. Um, This has been excellent, man. If you had any, uh, we've talked about a lot, but if you had any piece of advice or any one thing that you wanted to deliver to any other IT directors, technology leaders out there listening, what would that be? I'd just say provide value. I mean, if you're providing value and your organization doesn't recognize it, somebody else will. Um, But if you're in that mindset of always providing value, you'll be successful. Hey, 
thank you so much for taking the time today and uh, have a great uh, have a great rest of your afternoon, man. Same to you and uh, hopefully have a good holiday. All right, take care, man. <laughs>